Well, good morning, good morning. It's great to see you here today. If you are a visitor with us, special welcome to you. And if you're tuning in online for the first time, we look forward to meeting you face-to-face in the next few weeks. Well, last week we took a little break from the Gospel of John and we looked at the power of the resurrection in Philippians. We're back in John today. We're going to be in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. So if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and make your way there. And uh, if you are new and not familiar with West Cabarrus Church, you just need to hear the heartbeat of our church. Our mission statement is that we exist as a church. The reason why West Cabarrus exists is to glorify God by making more and better disciples from neighborhoods to nations. We want to glorify God, and we do that by making more and better disciples from neighborhoods to nations. And so what that means is everything we do revolves around that. Why we do the things we do is because we're trying to glorify God by making more and better disciples from neighborhoods to nations. And so one of our events we have coming up is City Serve. This is a way for us to reach our, our neighborhoods. Um, that's what our prayer is. And so that day, uh, May 14th, is a day that we're planning on serving our community in a number of different ways. And some of you all have already taken the challenge to put one of these boxes together so that we can give it to people that have need and food. But we also have two other areas that we need you all to continue to support and care for. Uh, one is uh, if you... Uh, have been a teacher before or have a good friend that's a teacher or spouse, you realize that teachers end up buying a lot of those things that they need, paper, pens, all that stuff with their own money. And so what we as a church uh, wanted to do is adopt a couple schools and just care for the teachers. And so we do have uh, where you can give specifically to teachers in the back and some specific needs that they have. And also local homeless shelters that we partner with throughout the year. Uh, We want to provide needs that they have and so would really encourage you, maybe you've given the food portion of it, but look and think and consider our teachers and giving to that, as well as uh, thinking for those who are um, in need in the homeless shelters that you would give for that. And not just give, let me encourage you to mark your calendar on May 14th to be there. We're doing several new projects this year uh, that I'm excited about. Uh, one is we really want to encourage our, our first responders. And so we've actually adopted several of our uh, police officers that we're going to uh, give like gift back to baskets and some things to. We're grateful for them and what they do. And, and each week you see our police officers in the back, please tell them thank you. Um, shake their hand and just let them know how much we appreciate what they do. So part of our day we're going to serve them. But then also our healthcare workers. We're going to go up to Northeast Medical Center and uh, two floors of our staff that are over there at Northeast Medical Center. We're going to provide uh, gifts for and just appreciation and pray for. And so there's a lot going on on May 14th uh, as we pray for and serve our community. But love for you to be a part through your giving, but also your going as you mark that calendar and serve that day. So you can find the information about that online and, and commit to sign up for that and be a part of that. Um, But that's what we're doing, and I'm excited about that. We're going to glorify God by serving our neighborhoods and continuing to go to the nations. All right, before we dive into John 8, let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we know, we know that you desire for your people to be a light wherever they live. And so, Lord, I, I pray and I ask that you would help us to be a light, not just on May 14th, but, Lord, every day. God, that we would... Uh, display your great love for us as we love others, as we're patient with others. God, I ask that we would love our neighbor, um, that we would pray for them and serve them. God, we would display your goodness to us as we're good to others. Lord, and today I pray also that you would help us to understand the depth of your love, the depth of your grace, 
And Lord, as we read your word and we see how you deal with the sin and the brokenness of this world, but also the sin and the brokenness of our heart, that Lord, you would give us wisdom. You'd give us understanding on how we deal with the same issues. God, we need your grace. We need your help. And so Lord, would you be our guide today? It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, John chapter eight. Uh, We'll actually read the last verse of chapter seven. Um, And let me say a few things before we read it. If you've already found your way there, you're maybe looking at the brackets. You're looking at the statement above or in a footnote in your Bible and there's like red alarms going off in your mind. You're like, not in the earliest manuscripts, bracket, bracket. What is going on in these verses right here? Let me be the first to say, and I'll explain this, but let me be the first to say that we at West Cabarrus believe that God's word is trustworthy, that it's true, and that it's beautiful. We believe that about God's word. And so we stand as a church on the authority of God's word. We stand personally on God's word, and it leads us and guides us. And my hope and my desire is that one day I'll be actually Uh, able to take a series, a few weeks, where we walk through the beauty of God's word, the the trustworthiness of God's word, how it's not corrupted. It'll take several weeks. I'm not gonna be able to express all that today, but I wanna kind of give you the Cliff Notes version of that today as we we look at this statement, not in the earliest manuscripts. Now, with these brackets and with that statement, what you need to know is that this section was not added by opponents of the gospel trying to lead us off and throw us off the trail of God's grace. That's not why it's in there. The reason why it's in there is because of the great honesty and integrity of God's word. Now, this is me kind of theologically nerding out for a little bit, but I enjoy this stuff, so just bear with me. Um, There's there's two different ways that we get the Bible translations from the majority text and the, the minority text or the Alexandrian text and the Byzantine text type, okay? So, Majority of texts is where they take all of these different manuscripts. This is the Byzantine text type. All these different manuscripts that they have and they compare them and they're like, in the majority, this is what we find in these passages. And then the Alexandrian text type is the oldest manuscripts. And they're like, these are the, the oldest ones that we have. They're the, the farthest dated back. And this is what they say. So our Bibles fall into translating in one of those two categories and using those manuscripts to dis- determine so this, this passage, when it starts here, is it's saying it's not in the earliest manuscripts. This passage isn't the majority of manuscripts that we find in the Old Testament or in, in the New Testament and Old Testament, but it's not found in the earliest, the oldest manuscripts that we have. And so it just says it. It's just embracing the integrity and the honesty of God's words for us, saying, hey, you just need to know this. It's in the majority now, whether there's some debate on whether John wrote this or whether it should be placed specifically here in the Gospel of John, some people debate that, but nobody debates in the early church or even now whether this event took place in the history of life of Christ. They're not debating that. Nobody in the early church did. Nobody today is. Some people are like, well, maybe this was just not written by John, but it is written by an eyewitness that saw this moment happen and it's placed in the Gospel of John. So that's the reason why it's in there. And I'm thankful for that. God's word didn't have to have this little bracket in here, right? I mean, if you look at all the other history and things that we have, nobody's doing this. I mean, you turn on CNN or Fox News, they're not starting with a story and they're telling you, hey, a lot of people disagree with this and we don't think that this is true. Some people don't, but like, but, but we do. So we're going to go ahead and tell you this. 
No, God's word with all of its integrity and all of its honesty saying, it's not in the oldest manuscripts, but it is in the majority of them. And people in all of church history have believed this is a true witness event that happened. And I believe that's true. And that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna walk through this event today and explain what God did in this moment. So let's look starting in verse 53. It says, when they each went to their own house, but Jesus then went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? What do you say? Now John is going to give us a little glimpse into the, the thought life of these people and give us commentary on why they're asking him this and they're setting up this whole situation. Verse 6 says this. This they said to him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and with his finger he wrote on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, then so, uh, but when they had heard it, then went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. This is the word of God. So what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's, he sees the brokenness of this world. He sees the sin and he's dealing with it. And church family, we need this. We, we need to see and understand this passage because it, it really applies to us. We, we can look and see all the sin and brokenness out there in the world and think, how in the world do we deal with that? But then the reality is we look in our own hearts and our own lives and we're like, man, what do I do about the brokenness and sin in here, right? Like, what do I do with brokenness out there? What do I do with brokenness in here? And what we find through the actions of Jesus is how we deal with those things. And so I hope as we walk through this passage, we find practical truths on how we deal with the sin in our world and in our lives. So first, let me challenge you and encourage you to leave behind condemnation and find forgiveness. Leave behind condemnation and find forgiveness. Now we read the setting in the first few verses of this passage. But I don't want you just to read it. I want you to feel it for a second. I want you to feel the setting of this passage. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. She was very likely pushed and prodded and shoved into the temple for this moment. There's no way she desired to stand in the temple of God before Christ and a crowd of people for this moment. And the hypocritical religious leaders this time, the scribes and the Pharisees, as she stands there in front of all these people, they just continue to pour on condemnation after pour on condemnation after pour on condemnation in this woman. I mean, could you imagine what this would feel like for this woman in this moment? 
I mean, have you ever been caught doing something wrong? I mean, you get caught and, and you hope that privately it gets addressed. This is publicly. Like she's in front of a crowd of people. This is the setting. And they drag this woman in front of Jesus and they start to quote the law of condemnation and punishment to him about her. Now, let me be clear this morning. They were not wrong when they quoted the law. They're not misquoting what the law said. I mean, you guys know the Ten Commandments most likely, but in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, one of the Ten Commandments, the seventh commandment, is you shall not commit adultery. Like this is a sin in this moment, right? And because of that sin, they're saying, what's the punishment for her? Now in Leviticus, it kind of unpacks the, the law more and puts the sentences when you break the law with it. And in Leviticus chapter 20, it, it talks about this statement that they're going to quote here. We should stone this woman for what she's done. She's broken the law. We should stone her. So, so you read that, even in Leviticus, you've got to ask the question, why is God so strict about marriage? And why does he care so deeply about adultery? The sentence is so severe because if we really slow down to think about it, we know that adultery kills. Those of you who have been through it and experienced it, you know it kills. It kills relationships. It kills marriages. It kills families. It kills children. It kills hopes and dreams. And sometimes when it goes too far without any law in place for it, there's no repercussions for it, that the person who's offended has actually come back and literally killed someone before it. So God looks at this moment and he's like, no, we're going to stop it before it starts. And the sentence is really, really serious. But we also have to understand that it's rarely, rarely ever enacted. You see, God's word is extremely strict in the Old Testament on some of its laws and its consequences. But it's also really, really, really strict in the evidences that are required to convict somebody. If you go read in Leviticus, it's not just that you saw somebody walking out of the house and you thought that they committed adultery or you heard somebody talking about that they committed adultery. Like, no, what was required by the law for this action to happen is you had to catch the person in the act. So that's what's happening in this moment. They've caught her in the act. I mean, some scholars even think here that maybe these Pharisees have said to the man, hey, you lure her in, you do this act, and then, and then what we'll do is we'll pull her out and we'll leave you alone because we want to catch Jesus in the act. Now, this is a serious sentence, but it's, like I said, rarely, rarely ever enacted. And the Mishnah, which is a Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, it actually said in the Mishnah, it says if, if this happens more than once every seven years, then it's been a bloodbath. It's been a slaughter. You see, it never or rarely ever happened. And this command shows us that God does take the breaking of marriage very, very seriously. And that's what we see when we see this command. But if we go back and we look at the context of this command in Leviticus, what it also shows is that God takes forgiveness and salvation very, very serious too. Very serious. You see, before you get to Leviticus 20, you have to go through Leviticus 16, right? That's the order in which you would read it. In Leviticus 16, I know all of you know it by heart, but if you're not familiar with Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16 is about the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, what God's people would do is they would come 
to God's house. He'd come to the temple and uh, they would bring two goats. And the people would stand at the temple and they would confess their sins, get this, out loud, okay? I mean, imagine if we did that today. Like, we're going to all confess our sins and we're going to say them all out loud. I mean, we would be like, God, I've been really angry and bitter towards... Oh, wait, they're right there. God, I have an unspoken sin that I've committed. Would you just please forgive me? Like, that's what it would look like for us if we practically did this today. But at that time, in Leviticus 16, they would come and they would confess their sins out loud. And then symbolically, what the, the, the high priest would do is he would take this goat and he would put his hands on the head of the goat and he would pray confessing the sins on this goat. It's just a symbol. But then they would take this goat and they would take it outside of the city and they would lead it away. As a picture, as a picture of God removing their sins as far as east is from the west. They actually called it the scapegoat, which is where we get that term from. That God was saying, I'm going to remove your sins far, far away from you when you confess them to me. But then they would take the second goat and the second goat would be sacrificed for their sins. He would die in their place because the wages of sin is death. And then they would take the, the blood of this animal and they would put it on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was to remind God's people of his mercy and his forgiveness. And if you know your Bible well, what's underneath the mercy seat, what's stored there, is the commands of God. Even this very one right here, y'all shall not commit adultery. It's underneath there. And what God is saying in that moment is, I'm atoning for your sins. And this is before he ever gave the punishment for the sins or the consequences for their sins. Because this is how God works. God saves and then he sanctifies. God rescues and then he changes us. He rescues us before he gives us the rules. This is what God does. Think about it. Even before the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20, what has God done? He's rescued the people out of Egypt. And now he's like, now that I've rescued you, now that I've saved you, this is how you should live. And this is what God does. This is the beauty of the gospel in this moment. Because God knows that we are prone to wonder. That we are prone to leave God who loves us. And so he starts with the day of atonement before he ever gives the laws because he knows that we need grace. And we're gonna continue to see the grace of God just kind of flow forth from this passage. But back to verse six, back to verse six. All this setting and all this moment is happening because they want to test him. Now, what are they trying to test him in? Well, it's one of these two things or maybe it's both of these things. But one is they're trying to test Jesus on his view of the law and morality. His view of the law and morality. You see, Jesus, if you remember a few weeks ago in John chapter 7, has just stood up and made this claim, right? Everyone who is thirsty, whose soul longs for help, come to me and I will give you living water, right? This is what Jesus has said. So now these religious leaders come on the scene and they're like, hey, 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 Jesus, you said that... Uh, those that are thirsty come to you. Here's a woman that's thirsty. She's thirsty. She's trying to find her satisfaction in life through, through all of this sin and immorality. So Jesus, what are you gonna do with this woman? What are you gonna do with her and her sin? You see, they're challenging Jesus at this moment. They're testing him. They're saying, are you going to save this woman and trample on the law of God? 
And if he does, if he excuses this woman and, it, and tramples on the law of God, then they're going to say, aha, see, you can't be the Messiah. You can't be the Messiah. Because look what he does with the Old Testament. The Messiah is supposed to fulfill the Old Testament. And here you are trampling on it. But if he says, no, 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 you have to respect the law and you have to crush her for these things, then they'd say, ah, look, look, see this Messiah that you guys long for so much, the one that said, if you're thirsty, come to me, come to him. Yeah, come to him in your thirst, but he's gonna execute you. He's gonna kill you. So yeah, come on to him. So they're testing him in this moment. What they're saying is, you're either going to have to trample on her or you're gonna have to trample on the law. That's the test. You're either gonna have to be a moral person and trample on people, or you're gonna have to be a compassionate person and trample on morality. One or the other, Jesus, what you gonna choose? What you gonna choose? That's one of the tests that's set before Jesus. There's also the political side of this because the Jewish people did not have the rights to put anybody to capital punishment, anybody to death. They couldn't do it. That's why we'll see later on in the Gospel of John that the, the Jewish people drag Jesus to the Roman rulers and say, kill this man, crucify him. Why? They couldn't do it. They didn't have the rights to do it. And so they're hoping in this moment, like, yeah, Jesus, yeah, yeah, tell everybody that we should kill her. And then they're gonna run and we're gonna get the Roman government to come down and arrest you because you're going against Roman law. That's the test that's before Jesus. I mean, how are you gonna respond to that? What does Jesus do? He doesn't even speak for a moment. He just stoops down and starts drawing or writing on the ground. And they continue, it says they continue to ask him and Jesus continues to write on the ground. Now, what he writes on the ground right here, nobody knows. I mean, if you ever have somebody tell you, we know exactly what Jesus wrote, then they're lying to you because we don't know. We have no idea. But we have a strong evidence by their response to what Jesus did that it had something to do with the sin of these hypocritical religious leaders. It had something to do with their heart. So there's a lot of guesses we could take. I mean, maybe what Jesus is doing as he's writing on the ground is he's listing out the sins of these people that are there accusing this woman. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. Maybe what Jesus is doing is he's writing out the rest of Leviticus 20 because the people who are bringing this woman there, they're not even following the law in this moment. You had to have both the, the man and the woman that are being accused there. The man's not there. You had to have all these other things in place that they weren't following. And there's a sense of partiality that's going on, which God's word speaks is a sin as well. The sin of partiality. And so Jesus may be writing out the rest of Leviticus 20 saying, hey, guys, you aren't even following this correctly. There's sin in your heart. Or maybe what Jesus is doing is he's actually writing the names of the women that these men had committed adultery with. We don't know. But what we do know is Jesus is saying, if you want to play the judging game, then let's go. If you want to focus on sin and judgment, then let's start with your own sin and judgment. And church, I would challenge us today to do the same. Let us not focus on others' sins without first seeing our own sin. It's easy for us even today to focus on other people's sin and not our own with this passage. Some of us have read this passage and we're like, 
yeah, how are these people going to come in and judge a woman like this? Don't judge it, you be judged, right? And we look at this and we get on their, their team and we're like, yeah, I, I can't believe they're judging like that. We should never judge like that. And we start to think about all the other people that we know that judge other people and we're judging them right now, right? We're looking at them and we're like, man, they're, all their sin and their brokenness. We just kind of excuse ourselves from the whole situation, right? When the reality is some of us fall into that camp as well. I mean, as a pastor, I've had people come to me and want me to speak about certain sins. Man, you really need to speak about this sin more because I know this person's struggling with it. I, I, you need to speak about this sin because I see this sin in our culture. You know what I've never heard? I have never had somebody come to me and say, Ryan, I am struggling with greed so much. Would you please talk about generosity? Because I've got this sin and I'm trying to war well against it, but I can't. No, that's not what I hear. I see us all saying, let's talk about everybody else's sin out there instead of dealing with our own sin in here. But we have to look at our own sin. And if, if we're honest, when we read this story, many, if not all of us, fall into the sin that this woman committed. Like we can relate to, to the sin in her life. And you're thinking, Ryan, some of us are thinking, you know, I've never committed adultery. What are you talking about? I, I don't relate to this woman. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. You'll see it on the screen. Verses 27 and 28. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Quoted the Old Testament, right? And we can sit here and some of us can be like, yep, never done that. I'm good there. Thanks a lot, Jesus. And then he says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh-oh. Uh, that probably hits all of us. <laughs> Just the look of lust and using somebody? That's not, the lust that he's talking about there is not noticing that somebody's beautiful or not. That is looking at somebody and trying to abuse them for your own pleasure. Whether it's in your mind or with your body. And Jesus is calling, he's saying, that's the sin. And so we can look at this woman and be like, how dare she? But Jesus will look at us and be like, how dare you? And we all have our sins that we struggle with. But what's important for us, and listen carefully to this, please listen to this. Our righteousness does not start when we can point out all the sins in other people's lives, but when we can see it in our own. We will make no spiritual progress until we look within and take responsibility for what we see in our own heart. That we are guilty of sin. Some of us, don't share the gospel or never faithfully share the gospel because we only think of the gospel as the condemnation side. We just got to share that with all their sin that's going on in their life and we just got to share that with them. But what we have to understand is that we are forgiven of our sins. This is the truth of the gospel. The gospel is not me saying, everybody in here that's perfect, you go out and tell other people who are sinful and broken how they can be perfect like you. That's not what sharing the gospel is. Sharing the gospel is saying, I am broken, I am battling, I am struggling with sin. And I want to tell people who are struggling without life far from God where they can have hope, where they can find forgiveness. And so it's one broken person struggling with sin, telling another person how they can find a hope and forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. So those of you that are waiting to share the gospel until everything is perfect in your life, you will never share the gospel. And that's not the gospel because none of us can be perfect. None of us. We need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so church, may we not look around condemning everybody else. Instead, may we look and ask forgiveness and find forgiveness. As we find that forgiveness, may we share that forgiveness with others.
This is what gospel is calling us to do. This is what Christ would lead us to do. Let us leave behind our condemnation and find forgiveness. Secondly, let us leave behind our sin and find life. Let us leave behind our sin and find life. Remember, they're trying to set a trap for Jesus. And finally, after doodling in the dirt, Jesus finally stands up and he answers their question with truth and with grace. He says, let him without sin be the first to cast the stone. Now this is extremely important, what Jesus said. And if you've been around church in a while and you're familiar with this, you just heard it and you kind of rolled it on in your mind. I want to slow it down for a minute. It's really important to notice that Jesus never actually said a stone shouldn't be thrown. Did you catch that? He doesn't say a stone shouldn't be thrown. He says, throw a stone, but make sure it's the one, the one who does it is without sin. He never denies that there needs to be punishment for this sin. Jesus says, doesn't say that there shouldn't be judgment for this sin. He doesn't say a stone of judgment shouldn't be cast. He says a stone should be thrown for sin. And the only person who can throw that stone is the person without sin. The person who is executing it cannot be guilty of the crime. And this is what Jesus is going to do. Jesus looks at these people who are ready to cast stones and he starts to name their sins. And I love how it says that the older ones walked away first. And the reason why I like that is because the older you get, the more sin you see in your life, the more faults and failures you find. And so I do think the older ones are sitting here and Jesus is writing out those sins or listing that out or bringing conviction on their heart and they each one at a time are dropping those stones, realizing they are guilty as well. They're guilty as well. And then Jesus, the first time he speaks to this woman, he looks at it and he's like, where are they who want to condemn you? She says, they're not here. And Jesus looks at this woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. You see, condemnation has been brought on this woman. And Christ finally looks at her and she's feeling this condemnation. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now this word for condemnation is, the, is a, a structural term where you would look at a building and say it's condemned. It's unfit for use. This woman is feeling like she's useless, that she is condemned, that there's no hope for her, that she's unfit for use. And Christ is looking at her in that moment when everybody else is saying, condemn this person. She's broken. And Jesus is saying, I don't condemn you. See, Jesus has hope for this person. He wants to rescue and redeem this person. And she sees this in this moment. And I love what she says in verse 11 because as she responds to Jesus, she says, nobody is here, my Lord. She looks at Jesus who, I don't know if she knows much about at this time, but she looks at him and calls him Lord in this moment. She sees the truth of her guilt and her shame. She sees the compassion and the forgiveness of God. She calls him Lord. And then Jesus looks at her and he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. 
This means that Jesus is communicating that she is guilty. That we're guilty. Now, wait a minute. How is it that Jesus can look at a guilty person and not condemn them? How can he look and say, you are guilty, but I do not condemn you? How is that possible? How does Jesus say that for us? How does he do that? Because he's the only one without sin. He's the only one who has the right to cast the first stone. And he's saying, I don't condemn you. And the reason why he doesn't condemn you, and the reason why he doesn't lift up the stone to stone her in that moment, is because he would take on her condemnation. He would die in her place. You see, she wouldn't even be hit by the pebble of God's wrath because Jesus was crushed under the boulder of the wrath of God for human sin on the cross. Here in John, he looks at a woman and says, neither do I condemn you. Why? Because he would be condemned in her place. Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and he will be condemned. He will be condemned. What? How can he be condemned? He's innocent because he was standing in in our stead and our place that he could look at us and say, yes, you're guilty. But no, I don't condemn you. This is who our Christ is. And Paul in, in the book of Romans highlights this a number of times. But he kind of elaborates on it a little more. And in, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Some of you have trusted in Christ for your forgiveness. And yet, what you did yesterday or the day before, you are living in condemnation right now. You're living in condemnation. Not the forgiveness. You're not living in Christ. You see, Christ will speak the words of correction, conviction. But Jesus even said, I didn't come to condemn, but that through me the world could be saved. So Jesus came. Now, the enemy's voice is fluent in condemnation. And this is what condemnation sounds like. It speaks in generalities. No specifics, because he doesn't really want you to change. He wants you to feel bad all the time with no, no, no moving forward in redemption. And so you'll hear whispers of like, you're a failure. Nobody loves you. Man, look at that mistake. How did, how did you do that? I can't believe you. And you just continue to heap on condemnation after condemnation until you feel like you're unfit for use. That's the language of the enemy. But the language of the Spirit comes in and calls us, and it uses specific language, not generalities. It uses specific language. Man, you lied in that moment. You need to go and apologize and confess that sin. You are greedy at that moment, not generous. You need to confess that sin and turn away. You lusted in that moment at that point in time. You need to turn your eyes away from that and fix your eyes on Christ again. That's how the spirit works. That's what Christ is doing in this moment. He looked at these religious leaders. He's like, here's your sin. And they turn away and they walk away from Christ. He looks at this woman and he's like, here's your sin. And she looks at him and says, Lord, you're my Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. You see, this is the glory of the gospel. That yes, we are guilty, but because Christ stood in our place, he forgives us. Now that doesn't justify our sins. That doesn't make our sins okay that we can continue in it. That's why Paul will say in Romans chapter six, what should we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
And that's what Jesus says in this moment. I don't condemn you, but now go and sin no more. You don't continue to sin and live in that lifestyle and say, well, I'm just trying to highlight how God doesn't condemn me. That's not what it says in that moment. You live in the freedom that Christ has given you. You don't live under the condemnation. You don't continue to live in those sins. Go and sin no more. Now, we can read that this morning and be like, man, that is a lot, a lot easier said than done. A lot easier said than done, right? But Jesus, in a number of different passages, will tell us as believers, those who are not condemned because we are forgiven, how to war with sin, how to battle with sin. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 26, this is what you should do. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. You know, we, 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 we hope to do the right thing, but our flesh is weak. Another way to say that is what we need, church, is we need to give more forethought. We need to give more forethought. Jesus in Matthew 26, did you see his wordage there? Watch and pray that you may not enter into sin. No, that's not what he said. Wait a second, watch and pray that you may not enter into transgression to run against God. That's not what he said. He said, watch and pray that you wouldn't even enter into temptation, which is the step before we sin. Jesus was tempted and he was without sin, right? He said, pray that you would not enter into temptation. Some of us continue to enter into the same sins over and over and over again because we're giving no forethought, no prayer, no watching to our life. What is it that's leading us to these areas where we sin regularly? Many of us shame ourselves over and over again for a lack of willpower when what we really need is forethought. We go into the same situation and then we're like, how did I sin again? I can't believe I did it again. I should have stronger willpower. When the reality is we don't need to have as much willpower. It's just forethought and wisdom to say, I'm not going to that place again. I'm not watching that show again. I'm not doing this. That's what we need if we're going to be able to do what Christ told us to do. Go and sin no more because I don't condemn you. So some of us just need to be really honest with our life and just say, I'm not going there again. I'm not doing that again. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I'm thinking about those things again. I'm not doing that. And I would encourage you with your forethought, think about if you continue to live this way, what is this action going to cost me? You see, sin allures us for the moment and we forget what's ahead of us. I mean, some of us know the reality of when we've lived in a sin long enough, it's it's cost us relationships. It's cost us marriages. It's cost us finances, right? We need to look at our actions and give forethought. This is where it's leading us. Every action leads to a destination. Where are your actions leading you? And if you want a different output, then change the input, right? If you want a different result, then change the way that you're living. Give forethought. When we start to see what sin actually costs us and how it actually leads us to death, then the allure of sin will lose its luster. It will. It'll lose its luster. And so I would encourage you practically, give your life forethought that you can enjoy the freedom of not being condemned and at the same time living in the freedom of going and sinning no more. But before you do that, I want to encourage you, if you haven't taken this step, this is the first one you have to take. Do you believe that Christ Jesus took your condemnation? He took your punishment. Do you believe that? Did you see the order of verse 11? 
Jesus did not look at this lady and say, go and sin no more and then neither will I condemn you. But a lot of us live our life that way. We're like, if I can just live a, a better life and I can be a good enough person, then I'll come to Jesus and Jesus will look at me and say, now I don't condemn you. I won't condemn you anymore. That's not how the gospel works. Jesus says, come to me with all of your sin and your shame and your guilt and your brokenness and I will not condemn you. All you that are thirsty and weary, come to me and I will give you rest. And then he will look at you and say, and then go and sin no more. So don't try to live this, this passage in reverse. Don't try to say, I'm going to go out of here and give more thought, forethought and work harder. No, you need to come to Christ this morning, right now, and hear him say, neither do I condemn you. And then out of that rescue, he will continue to redeem you. He will save you and then he will sanctify you. Come to him, receive that forgiveness and allow him through his power and his might to forgive you and allow you to walk in freedom. Let me close with this. Back in 2019, so just a couple years ago, there's a trial of this lady, Amber Geyer. And she murdered a, a man named Botham Jean. Some of you might have seen this. It's amazing. I'd actually encourage you, you can get on YouTube and watch this video live. But Amber um, murdered this man and even though it seemed accidental, nonetheless, it was a tragedy and she was guilty. So she stands on trial before she's about to be sentenced by the judge for her crime. Botham's brother comes forward to speak. And he stands there and with tears in his eyes, he looks at Amber and he says, I do not hate you and I don't want you dead. He said, I loved my brother and you took him from me, but I forgive you. And I believe that my brother, Botham, would want you to give your life to Jesus Christ. And then he looks at the judge and says, do I have permission to give her a hug? And that's the picture you saw on the screen where he is hugging her. She was guilty, yeah. She was sentenced, absolutely. But ex extended with that was forgiveness in a far deeper way. That's what God did for us. God knew that we were guilty, he knew that we were, and he could even look at us and say, because of your guilt and your sin, you took my son from me, and he died on the cross in your place. He could have said that. He could have said, you killed my son. But instead, what God does is he embraces us, and he hugs us, and he loves us, and offers us forgiveness. This is what Christ does. And so would you come to Jesus today and hear the words, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Bow your heads with me. God, thank you that you are just, that you look at the sin in the world and you say this must end, that punishment has to happen, but at the same time, you are the justifier, the one who stood in our place on the cross and died for us. You took the boulder of the wrath for our sin that we wouldn't even have to take a pebble. God, thank you for that. And Lord, I pray for the one today that's living in that feeling of condemnation. I pray that they would come to you. 
that they would pray to you seeking your forgiveness, that they would take the step of boldness to go to next steps after service and talk to somebody, confess their sins and find forgiveness in the freedom that their hearts long for. God, you work as you speak in our hearts about specifics. God, may we not listen to the enemy of generalities, that we're a failure, that there's no hope for us, that we can't be used. May we listen to your spirit, the one that would convict us of our sin, that we would find life and life everlasting. Thank you for that promise today. God, we confess and we know, Lord, our sins are many, but your mercy is more. And we thank you for that. And it's in your name we praise you for it. Amen. Church family,